My name is Andrew Gomson, and I have the privilege each and every week of welcoming you to the Speaking for Him podcast. Today, we are returning to our reviews of The Chosen Season 2, and we are now on Episode 7. This is a very unique episode for reasons that we will detail in a little bit when we get into our review, but first, let's talk about what is going on. Well, it is June, which means for the Supreme Court that they are getting ready to render several decisions before they go on summer hiatus. And one of those decisions that recently came out involved Christian education in the state of Maine. We have some news out of the Supreme Court. NBC's Pete Williams is here with more. Pete. Well, Jose, yeah, we're waiting for Supreme Court decisions today. We've got two more yet to come, or one more yet to come, but the Supreme Court has just given a very interesting ruling on a case involving freedom of religion. This was a case from Maine, has an unusual program. In order to let children who live in rural areas attend high school, they give money to parents who can then use that to, for tuition to send their children to either public or private schools. But the state has a law that said that money can't be used to send the children to what are called sectarian schools. Now, the Supreme Court has previously ruled that when states have a sort of scholarship program like this, they can't discriminate against schools that have a religious affiliation, that are just run by a religious group. This case takes it a step further and says if the state's going to give money for this kind of uh, support, it also has to give it to uh, parents that can use their um, uh, send their children to schools that offer a religious education. So not just religious affiliation, but explicitly offer a religious education. The Supreme Court said it would violate religious freedom not to allow parents to use the money to send their children to religiously oriented schools. And it also said there is, in a sense, a kind of circuit breaker here because the money doesn't go directly to the schools. It goes to the parents who then decide where to send their children. So it's a, it's another step in, you might say, lowering the wall of separation between church and state. The Supreme Court taking this additional step here saying that if a state's going to have this kind of a tuition program that has to allow the money to go to schools that offer a religious education. So that's state support for a religious education. And it's a six to three decision with the conservatives and the liberals dividing. Now, I have very mixed feelings about this decision by the Supreme Court. On the face of it, it seems like a very good idea to be able to say that equality in all things education is important and that if you want to spend education monies on a Christian education, you should be able to. That sounds very amazing. However, I do think it's a little bit hard to think about state money as being used for Christian education, because right now the Supreme Court is standing behind us and saying, yes, you can use this for Christian education, and it should be able to be used for whatever education the parents say that it should be used for. But I remember back when George W. Bush came up with his faith-based initiatives, again, that was something that was a little exciting, but also was very dependent on whoever was in charge of it what counted as a faith-based initiative. So my thought process at the time was, 
Well, if it's the Bush administration and they have a very conservative stance on what a faith-based initiative might be, that's a good thing. But if it continues into the next administration that may not be in accordance with biblical values, they may come up with a whole nother definition of faith-based initiative. So I tend to favor educational opportunities and institutions that operate outside of the purview of the state's finances because that gives them total freedom. I am currently taking a free online class through Hillsdale College, and I really am enjoying it. It's it's actually a course on C.S. Lewis and Christianity. And I would encourage any one of you who is listening to take the time to enjoy this free course You work at your own pace. I think there's seven lectures and I have two more to go before I'm done. And it just gives you a really good overview of C.S. Lewis's life and writings, especially as pertains to his Christian faith. Someone who went from atheist to deist to born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it would be worth your time. I recall stories of people that were given the opportunity to work for Christian schools through the use of state funds, and they had certain restrictions that were technically in place on how they could participate in the religious activities of that school. So without going into any more detail of that, I just want us to be aware of the challenges of a decision like that. That being said, I do applaud the court for upholding Christian values in the sense that saying that Christian schools have as much value as do a public school. I think that's very important. Uh, But as I said, the flip side of that is for Christian schools to say, well, we're getting this state funding, um, and so we want to make sure that our academic pursuits are high, and I'm not saying academic pursuits shouldn't be high, but sometimes when you put academic pursuits above the religious pursuits or the spiritual pursuits, as the case may be, your spiritual emphasis and the goals that you're trying to reach in mentoring children and reaching them for Christ could be pushed to the back burner in the name of academic excellence. And when I wrote my book, uh, Men of Valor, one of the things that I said was that it doesn't matter if you can get an A in calculus if you don't know how to follow the best of masters. And I just think it's very important for us to, as we prize academics um, in education, we need to make sure that we put moral character, and pursuit of Christian values first. And so those are my concerns as far as that go. But the big plus with this decision by the Supreme Court is that the state money in question and the law in question involves parents' use of the funds. So the parents are ultimately in control, and that is always a good thing in my book. Well, we just passed Father's Day. I hope that you had a wonderful Father's Day with your dad. I did. 
I was privileged to preach a Father's Day message at my church, and then I followed that up with going to my brother's uh, new house and uh, enjoying time with the family and watching the grandkids and my brothers and sisters enjoy his new pool. So it was a blessing, and I really hope that you have had a blessed time with your father. If you don't have a good relationship with your father, uh, might I encourage you to strengthen or gain for the first time a relationship with God who says, I am a father of the fatherless. And the way that you have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But Jesus does want us to come to the Father, and so my hope is that you will make that decision to come to the Father and trust him with your future. With that being said, um, the Fox News Sunday show had a really interesting segment about the importance of fathers. I've got a, a, a graphic here I want to pull up. It talks about U.S. kids living without, uh, with just their mother. So in 1968, it was 11% of children, but in 2020, it was 21% of children. And I think this hits to the heart of an issue that this country faces. We, we are literally, we're fighting over how many genders there are, mm-hmm. and, and we're so far out in the peripheral that we're not honing back in on the basics. Yeah. Every child needs a, a mom and dad. They need two parents. They need a masculine and feminine figure to show them when, when love matters and when to be strong and tough. And Katie, or Aisha, I guess we'll come to you. You posted about your dad today. I know, I know you have an amazing story. I'm going to push back a little bit. I think, you know, obviously, yes, I think I would love for every child to have a father. But I do believe that single moms out there can raise their kids, especially if they have the support. I think the problem is there's a broken family structure in this country. I I see it all the time. People don't have support. People don't have good friends. People don't have good neighbors. People don't even know each other anymore. They don't talk about their problems. People are suffering alone. You talk about the mental health crisis in this country. Our kids, um, just everywhere you look, people are choosing drugs or alcohol or something else. And it kills me because it is not like this but in it, other I, countries. I, 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 I want to push back a little bit on that just respectfully because I think every family unit is different. But when you point out those numbers, that was in the 60s. That was the great society. That was the destruction of the family unit, especially in the black community. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you right now, I'm fortunate, I'll say it, to have a mom and dad, we'll get to the Father Day segment, that made it great to be inside that house with role models, a mm-hmm. mom and a dad. For me, it benefited me, and that's, I think, why I'm here right now. You know, yeah, Katie, we, we're using like the term pushback. I don't think any of us are disagreeing. No. I, no. I fully agree. Single moms are superheroes. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that that's, that's the preferred method. Like, I can walk out of this room, but I would rather do it on my real legs. Well, like, I, the, people can overcome adversity. Of course. But, there's, but dads matter. But there are some, there's some hard facts that we have about the numbers. You know, yeah. if, you ha- if you don't have a father in the home, you're four times, your risk for poverty goes, is four yeah. times greater than someone who, just has, who, who does have a father and a mother in the home. You're more likely to go to prison. You're more likely to commit a crime. And you're two times more likely 
to drop out of school. So this has been studied. And I agree with you that this idea of, you know, it's fine if we break down the family and society can function in the same way. We know that that's not true. And there are a lot of women who don't have that support. And, and they do need a, a, the fit, you know, a figure in the Absolutely. family that's to help what I'm them. Saying. They need yeah. that they support. They need support. So, yeah. you know, a, a, a man in the home, a, a family, in, you know, a, a father in the home. But it's also the government has done a horrible yes. job at this. And they have enabled this fatherlessness in the country by telling women that, you know, if you don't get married, you can get more money from the welfare state. Right. And that will that help you the raise 60s. your child. They have, replaced the, they have replaced the father with, with the, government. the government. Right. And I'll tell you right now, the power and the impact when you're growing up, that impression a man and a woman makes, mother and father, for me, again, it's powerful, impactful. And what you just heard there on that clip is the primary reason that speaking for him exists. Because even as I was a older teenager and going into my 20s and going through college and getting out of college, I realized what the impact was when we go away from the blueprint of the Bible. And you heard these statistics about how people are more likely to have failures in life in a variety of different areas, not the least of which is commit crimes because of the lack of fathers. And I just want to to let you know that the statistics that were read on that clip came from the National Fatherhood Initiative. So if you want to look at those and see how... Uh, those things correlate, please do go to the fatherhood initiative and get more information. But I think there was some really key points here. First of all, the one commentator talked about the reason that he was there was because he had the solid foundation of a mother and father who loved him and cared for him through his life. The next thing I want to mention is that there was a young lady on the panel who was talking about how she thinks that we need to make sure to know that single mothers can do this, uh, that they are able to do the job of raising decent children. And one of the things that I thought was really good about this piece is the, the men who were sitting at the table were like, we're not taking anything away from single mothers. We think they're superheroes, but we also know that this is not the ideal. We also know that there is a best way to do things. There is a blueprint. God knew what he was doing when he put a man and a woman together and came up with marriage. Marriage is God's design, and if it's done in his timing and in his way, and the family takes its cues from the Bible as to how it structures itself, like you, you meet, you fall in love, you develop a relationship, you decide that we need to be married, so you get married, and then you have children, and then you have this unit that is a safe haven from the things that are going on in society, and you're able to raise up the next generation in a way that prepares them for the future. That is the way that we are supposed to live this life. Now, are there ways in which this life isn't perfect? Absolutely, because sin is an issue. And so to act like we can just wave a magic wand and see all of the single mothers go away, that's not true. 
we have to deal with the reality that they do exist, but we must be willing to say, this is not the ideal. And how can we change the way we're doing things so that we don't continue to repeat the cycle of failure that is going on in our society right now? Because I I feel this hardcore that people are seeing chaos and destruction and they're scratching their heads and wondering what's going on. And if you look at the Bible and the way the family is supposed to be structured and the way that we are largely doing it right now as a culture, that will answer your question as to why we are struggling. Because the family is foundational to society, and when you take away the foundation, society crumbles. And the final point of this piece was basically to say that the government has enabled people to live a life that is contrary from the word of God because they tell single women, you can get more help, more benefits. We will take care of you if you choose not to be married. And they make it advantageous to not be married. And so this is where we are as a society. We need to get back to a society where we help one another. We need to get back to the model that God set up where the primary ministry of the church is not the singles group or the youth group or the seniors group or the new gymnasium. The primary ministry of the church is to care for the fatherless and the widow and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so I salute my dad. I've told you before on this podcast that he is a big reason why speaking for him exists. And I salute All the other dads who are listening, thank you for all that you do. Please know that you cannot be replaced um, by anything else in the society. I recently saw a statistic that said 75% of children will remain churched and come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ if their father sets that example. And it goes down significantly when the father does not do that. So please continue to fight the good fight, continue to be good men and continue to pass on that example to future generations. Well, I am super excited today to jump back into The Chosen Season 2. This is Episode 7, so we have one more episode before the finale. Let's look at our quote of the day. Today's quote comes from the episode that we will be reviewing, and it's from a character by the name of Atticus, And he says, Jesus doesn't strike me at all as threatening or scary, and that's what scares me. In the environment in which these events are taking place, we see a very domineering society where the Romans exert power in everything they do. There's one point in the episode where the leader that is going to grab Jesus for questioning, says he's just going to march into the city where Jesus is known to be like he owns the place because that's what the Romans always do. 
but Jesus is showing a leadership style that is antithetical to pursuing power at all costs. Remember that Jesus told us he came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he was giving us an example of how to live our lives. And so I think that when he responded in kind and always used his power for good, it really threw people off kilter. And I think that Christians having that response in life still does. I've talked about on this podcast in the past how it seems like there's a prevailing uh, belief in society today that we should pursue our own happiness at all costs when the Bible tells us the opposite, that we will be happiest and most fulfilled when we pursue holiness first and let happiness be the result. And one of the ways that we do that is we serve others and put them first. And so I think what we're seeing in this quote is that Jesus is doing the exact opposite of what most people would say that a leader should do, but he's getting results. And as Atticus is going through this conversation with the Roman leader that he is traveling with, he's talking about all the things that Jesus has done and how it amazes him, and he wants to see how Jesus will respond to the adversity of being questioned by the Roman authorities and being physically restrained is mentioned as well. I think there's a lot that we can apply as we think about this because a lot of times when we respond in a Christian manner, the way that the world responds is to be more abrasive and to get really mad at us because they don't know how to respond to kindness. It's very interesting, isn't it, when you consider the story of Daniel, who was always faithful to God and I'm sure always kind to the people that he was around, but it bothered the people that he worked with so much that they wanted to find a way to trip him up and to cause him to lose his place in the kingdom. And his character was so exemplary that they had to come up with a way to trick him. And they put a 30-day moratorium on prayer to anybody but the king. And the reason that they did this was because they knew that Daniel was faithful to God and that every day he would go into his room and he would pray three times a day toward Jerusalem with an open window. And sure enough, Daniel does that. He's thrown into the lion's den and God preserves him. So at the end of the day, the people that were menacing to Daniel ended up paying. And we find out that it wasn't because the lions weren't hungry that they didn't consume Daniel, but it was because the mercy of God was with him. Because when these enemies of Daniel are proven uh, to not be successful in seeing Daniel die, the king pulls Daniel out of the lion's den and throws the men into the lion's den with their families that were uh, that were against Daniel, and it says that the lions ate them before they touched the ground. So that's just an example of how living a godly life and being uh, the shining example of godliness uh, to others can 
throw them into a tizzy. And that's going to continue to happen in our culture. Uh, we have a culture right now that hates God and that wants um, godliness to cease. But we need to keep letting our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. I enjoyed this episode, but I have my reservations because it was not uh, largely biblical. It was largely extra biblical. And as I've told you before, I don't think that extra biblical is bad as long as it's not anti-biblical, but it's a little bit harder when I'm sitting and watching these episodes that have very little of the actual scripture in them. But I think it is kind of significant to consider the fact that one of the things that Dallas and the Chosen crew try to do with these type of episodes is to show you what the verses in between might have meant. Because you see these verses where Jesus is traveling from town to town and doing different things and healing many people, and you don't really know what that means. You just read the phrase and then you move on to the next major story. So I think one of the things that that Dallas and crew are trying to do as they do this episode and episodes like it is to just make us pause and to think about what might have been going through the disciples' minds as they are dealing with with first century uh, Palestine and the surroundings as they are traveling uh, for ministry. And so from that vantage point, I think it does give a fresh view. You start out with seeing the disciples um, kind of bickering over who has to do uh, the project of fishing and giving uh, the disciples and those that were traveling with them sustenance. Jesus even mentions later in the episode that they were dealing with a food shortage and that they were had some of the disciples who happened to be Peter and Andrew out fishing to help stock them up and give them supplies for the future. As the episode unfolds, one of the major things that happened uh, in this episode is something that I uh, am going to, I think, take major issue um, with Dallas on because he actually has a situation where Jesus is wanted for questioning. That is not a shock. Jesus was definitely wanted for questioning in the scriptures. But the way in which uh, this took place is something that I take issue with. Um, but before I get um, much further, I, I do want to play a little segment of these soldiers and, I guess, a detective of sorts who had informed them of Jesus' whereabouts, and then they're going to collect him so that, that he can have this conversation with Quintus which is the kind of the main thrust of this episode. I must admit, I am intrigued by your prey. Jesus of Nazareth? I saw a man who had not stood on his own two feet in half a century, bounding like a boy. I watched a martyr throw down his weapon and take a knee. I saw a lunatic's eyes go clear. Jesus of Nazareth did those things. He doesn't strike me at all as threatening or scary. And that scares me. 
Now, maybe I'm just interested to see how he'll take to wrist irons. Now, this reminds me of the passage that says no one spoke like this man. Obviously, the religious leaders and the Romans were observing the things that Jesus was doing, and I'm sure it had a profound impact on them. So this is Dallas Jenkins' interpretation of one of the ways in which this might have manifested. But here is is some of the reasons why I take issue with this particular part of the episode. I take issue because there were so many times when the authorities wanted to capture Jesus and they even asked for him to be brought into them. And over and over again, it says these words, his time was not yet come. And because of the fact that his time was not yet come, either he would slip away or you had a situation where the soldiers basically were told to collect Jesus and bring him in only to come back without him. And when they're asked why they came back without him, their only answer was no man spoke like this one. So it seems to me that Jesus was divinely protected until the very specific time when he was arrested and tried falsely and then placed on a cross for your sin and mine. The other reason why I would take issue with this is we never see Jesus talking to the Roman authorities other than the the Roman officer that wanted healing for their servant or their child. But we don't hear him talking to the Roman authorities about things pertaining to himself. We only ever see him talking to Jewish authorities and, and being pursued by Jewish authorities and having Jewish authorities wanting to take him into custody. The next thing I would say that I have a problem with in this scenario is the issue of Jesus not only being taken in for questioning, but in a sense arrested because he was placed in handcuffs, in wrist irons, as the man in that clip I just played said. And I just don't think that that, that would have happened prior to the Gethsemane arrest. Because even with the Gethsemane arrest... The only way it happens is if Jesus yields himself to it because they go to arrest him and they fall backwards because Jesus has that kind of power that they cannot take him unless he allows it. That being said, he did have, as I said, confrontations with leadership, Pharisees and Sadducees. People even asked him, should we pay tribute to Caesar And he said, yes, you should. Of course, at the end of his earthly ministry, they tried to say that he was telling them to go against Caesar, but he wasn't. What he was saying is, essentially, go to God first, but God set up Caesar so you should respect his position of authority. So, 
I think that that particular scene was problematic. Um, I do like some of the references that happen in that scene because Jesus uh, refers to the miraculous catch of fish kind of on a side note. He And there's an homage in the Praetor's office to Jesus being the Lion of Judah. And there's some other things that are mentioned through the course of their conversation that point to the truths of Scripture. But I don't see this as being a plausible thing. Again, I think the more plausible scenario for this particular scene would be to ask Jesus to come in and he follows them back. But to have him chained and essentially arrested, I do not believe that occurred. But I have a lot of respect for what the disciples are going through during this episode because they're starting to see that the pressure is mounting. Jesus has been much more bold in talking to the authorities and not just sitting back and watching things happen, but directly challenging their authority. So the disciples are gun shy. At one point in the episode, they tell the man that was healed, that was put put through the roof of the household that Jesus raised up onto his feet. They tell him and his friend to stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus because they don't want him to be harmed or targeted. And there's a really good scene, too, between Peter and Andrew where Peter says, why are you so anxious about Jesus if you really believe he's the Messiah? And then Peter basically repeats what Jesus has said to him on a few different occasions, which is get used to different. And everything about what these disciples have experienced thus far has been extremely different from what they are used to uh, experiencing. One of the the instances where this came up was when Jesus calls Matthew. We still haven't seen a full uh, reconciliation between Peter and Matthew, but one of the things that we've seen throughout this second season is a continuous unfolding of that relationship and at least a newfound respect for each other is emerging. You could particularly see that in the last episode we talked about when Matthew and Peter were commissioned to go find Mary. And of course they do and they bring her back to the camp. And then, of course, Andrew in his humanness and probably some of the other disciples as well begin to think that one of the reasons that Jesus has been more bold and more outspoken is because of the arrest of John and because of uh, what happened with Mary and Andrew's perspective in particular, and I'm sure other disciples as well, was that these two events made Jesus upset and made him do more foolish things. Of course, from their human perspective, they couldn't understand that Jesus was fully in control and that he knew what he was doing. I did like when Quintus was talking to Jesus and said, 
you need to stop doing anything to upset my authority and to make things difficult for me. And Jesus said, I can promise you uh, no such thing. And I, I did like that because Jesus was, was calm under pressure because he knows the end from the beginning. And so I thought that was very well done. And another thing that's interesting here is that as you go through this episode, you have Peter who's reassuring Andrew after Andrew was the one that brought Peter to Jesus. Now Peter's doing the reassuring of Andrew that everything will ultimately be all right. And it kind of reminds me of how we function in the body of Christ, where we need to be encouraging to one another because one day we might be up and our friend might be down and we lift them up. And the next day we might be down and our friend might be up and they lift us up. Uh, It's part of living in community is to encourage one another and build each other up. So I really appreciated the way that that was put forth. Another interesting aspect of this episode is that near the end of the episode, after we've gone through all the fighting of uh, Peter and Andrew, and after all of the angst of the episode, we have the disciples basically coming to Jesus and saying, can you teach us to pray? And that's one thing that Dallas Jenkins talked about in his director's reaction to this episode. And ultimately that brings us to the climax of the episode, The Lord's Prayer. Now, originally we didn't know exactly where The Lord's Prayer was going to go. I decided that we needed that in this episode just because of the fact of what I said earlier, which is that this episode is so tense and has so many things that aren't from Scripture. I just thought we've got to bring it back somehow to the center of our show. And the center of our show is ultimately Jesus' impact on his followers. Even though this is just a brief scene, we thought, let's bring The Lord's Prayer into this episode. This will be a beautiful climax to the episode. It doesn't solve everything, but it does show you where the disciples need to go when they are stressed. Jesus says something in this scene that I saw in the chat during the live stream. It hit so many people, which is when he when he's talking about how I told you to wait. And then he said, there are going to be times when I'm not around and you have to learn how to navigate through these situations. You have to learn how to face fear because it's going to come even worse. And isn't that true 2,000 years later? We have got to figure out how to seek out Jesus in ways beyond just having him standing there in the flesh with us. We know Jesus is with us at all times, but he's saying, what are you going to do when I'm not standing here with you in the flesh? And they've got to learn how to navigate through that. And that's when they ask, well, how should we pray? We want to pray like you do. And that's another key part of it. We see you praying, Jesus setting the example for us. We see you praying and we want to be more like you. And Jesus says, now you're acting like true students. And hopefully this scene is a lesson for all of us. I know it was a lesson for me. One of the things that I really liked about that particular clip and this approach is that Dallas is saying a lot of times we read in the scriptures, Lord teach us to pray. And then we read about the Lord's prayer as Jesus lays down the pattern for prayer, but we don't think about the stresses as he says, or the motivations that the disciples have for learning to pray. And So that was one of the things that he wanted to build up to by creating the scenario the way he did 
and say, okay, so they've gone through these stresses on their relationships. You started out with the disciples fighting over who was going to do the fishing and who was going to be able to get out of it. And then you had the fighting with Andrew and Peter, who were the ones that were chosen to fish. And then you had the stress of the Romans coming around and Andrew flipping out on pretty much everybody, but particularly Mary Magdalene and blaming her for uh, causing Jesus to go out of his mind or go off the deep end as it appeared to Andrew's human intellect. And you just, you just saw humanity in the disciples. And I, and I do think that that is a, that is a good thing. I think it's an encouraging thing to realize that the disciples were human as are we. And so we can learn from them. And then just Dallas talking about how Jesus wasn't going to be there forever. You know, eventually in, in John uh, chapter 14, Jesus said, I'm going away and you can't come with me now, but you will come and I will prepare a place for you. And you know the way. And Philip says, how do we know the way unless you show us? And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then you have Mary, who has been welcomed back into the group by Jesus, but there's obviously, as I said, some resentment from Andrew. And so you have this whole scene where she makes a public apology to the group. And she says, you know, I, I distrusted Jesus and I left. And so now I've learned my lesson and I think we need to need to trust him when he says he's coming back because when he leaves with the Romans, that's what he says. I'm coming back. Don't worry. And you know, the disciples are all trying to process this in their own way. Should we go break him out? What should we do about it? And some of them say, let's take Jesus at his word. He said to wait. And others say, maybe he was telling us that we needed to rescue him. And I think we've all been in the place where we've gotten ahead of God and said, God, if you'll just go along with my plan, everything will be all right. And we see in scripture how that doesn't work out, particularly in the story of Abraham, when God told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, but then he waited years and years for this to happen. And Abram got impatient and so did Sarai. And she said, if you go into my maidservant Hagar, perhaps I can uh, bear a child through her. I'll catch the child on her knees. That was the cultural thing. And then the child will be mine. Of course, that firstborn was Ishmael. And that decision of Abraham's to go ahead of God has been causing a rift and cultural conflict for the rest of time. And a lot of the Middle East conflicts that we go through even today are related to that decision by Abraham to get ahead of God. Now, was God faithful to his word? Absolutely, because several years later, then Isaac was born, and of course, Ishmael mocked Isaac. So God told Abraham to listen to his wife and to send them away. I think one of the biggest lessons of this episode is to wait on God and let him give you guidance and direction. When the people waited, then Jesus came back because his time had not yet come. 
And so where do I land as I end the review of this episode? As you probably know, I'm a big fan of using narrative and plausible uh, fiction to weave together a biblically accurate but entertaining story about the Bible. This is especially true on my Good Friday podcasts, which are now sorted into their own playlist on my website. If you go to my audio sermons section, you will find the sermons and the podcast together. You can go to sort options and find Good Friday episodes, and you can find these there. So I have no problem with doing that. I actually really enjoy a good effort at that. But I think that you have to be careful that you are using the narrative to drive people to the scriptural truth. And as I said, I struggled in this episode because it was not as biblically based. Is this still worth your time? I think it is. I think there are still some good lessons for us to learn, and so I would encourage you to watch it. But because of the reasons that I have outlined throughout, I'm giving this a three out of five stars. Um, and so it, it's it's one of my lower-ranked episodes, but is nonetheless, uh, I think, an important episode, and I hope that you enjoy watching it. And you can watch it on the chosen app on your choice of device absolutely free. You have the opportunity to donate to help other people get to watch this episode, but it is not a requirement for watching. So with that being said, I will simply say that I really uh, am enjoying uh, reviewing these episodes with you. I'm really excited that Dallas and his crew are working hard on season three and I'll be excited to review that with you when the time comes. But next up for our journey through the chosen is the chosen season eight finale. And so we will get into that if not next week in the coming weeks. And I am excited for that eventuality. If you have any thoughts on this podcast episode, Maybe you've watched The Chosen Season 2, Episode 7, and you have a different perspective than me. Go ahead and share that with the feedback that will roll at the end of the show. If you have any ideas for shows, that's another piece of feedback you could give me. Um, there's also a widget, if you're not aware, on the blog at speakingforhim.blogspot.com where you can click on the right-hand side of the page and leave me a voicemail. Perhaps you want to ask me a question that you would like me to answer on a future episode of the show. I'd be more than willing to do that, but I can't answer your questions unless you send them to me. So please do that. You can also send me a message on my personal Facebook. Search Andrew Gomison on Facebook. And if you so choose, you can also email me via my website. With all that being said, I will simply say I hope that you have a great week and that you keep serving the best of men.
answers. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 